Yeah. <laughs> Done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do we really know what happened? The brother did. The that. brother. That's what I thought too. Yeah. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you just want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm mystery I, murdery thingy thingy thingy. Happy Wednesday. What's up? Um, this is our first bi-weekly episode. This is our first episode 90. Team Mystery. <laughs> yeah. Um, good for us. And, How exciting. Uh, yeah, no, it's pretty cool. I'm Mario. I'm Chloe. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingies. We talk about mysteries. And murder And thingies. And thingies. And murderies. And all that stuff. And mysteries. And stuff. And all that stuff. And mur- Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah so what Am shall I... we begin okay, i think yeah, you're going start. first because mine's mine's a i got a good i couldn't in... tell if you were gonna say something else or like what i don't know what else do we have to we talk usually just about? jump into it we, do, we do, do it. very little intro i like that about our podcast just fucking get into it so I'm get gonna... to the point right i'm gonna do some stories about murder in alaska yes um so Creepy. Whenever we're, like, thinking about, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're always thinking about it. Um, I, the, what I, you know, usually go to, right, is, like, okay, uns- unsolved deaths, list of unsolved deaths on Wikipedia. Okay, you just go there and find something, right? Other thing I think about. Location. Where, location. Where have we not done something? And I asked you that for this week's two by weeks episode. I said Alaska. And you said Alaska. So I was like, okay, I'll dig into it. And uh, there are a lot of unsolved Murders in Alaska, as well you can imagine. It's so right? remote. But the I did uh, the um, crime rate in Anchorage is also really high. I'll get that into that oh. later. I didn't realize it's actually a very dangerous city. Yeah, I only knew that because my mom watches a lot of like A and E. Oh, A and E. Okay. Yeah, there's oh, a lot of yeah. like Ice specific. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but there's a lot Getting of specific stuff about women. Anchorage and like oh, yeah. the like. Not the what's the word the forest police that's all I can think sure. of the the uh, park service park rangers, rangers stuff like that they yeah. do they deal with some hardcore shit oh yeah yeah no it gets crazy um, so anyway I'm gonna I think I'm gonna do two episodes about it because I found another about Alaska okay yeah because I found another story that um, was too big to get into I didn't have enough time there's like a book about it and stuff so I think I'm gonna do that at least that next time. So anyway, I'm going to start out, though, with um, the killing of John Pazenti, Jr. And uh, John Pazenti was, um, you know, kind of a young young man, you know, going from his home in, I think it was Connecticut, in the Northeast, uh, to Alaska. And I, I think he always kind of idolized Alaska. And um, I'm not sure that that was why he went there, but I, I think it was part of it. But certainly once he got there in 1976, he just, like, completely fell in love with her uh-huh. and from then on he was kind of on a mission like for the rest of his life he he had like this lifelong mission which was to document the like natural beauty of what he called america's last wilderness well not, not just him a lot of people call it america's last wilderness which, which it really is i mean even now much of alaska is a wilderness especially the archipelago like out you know going all the way to russia which is fucking nuts that it does. Did you know Sarah Palin can see Russia from her house? Oh, shut up. What is this, 2008? Although I'm not sure that... Because, you know, they're getting divorced, so... I don't can think see Russia that, from don't think my they have that house. house Broken house in Alaska. Look at That's all the sad. caribou. Anyway, that, that was needlessly political. Caribou. And old. 
and uh, moving <laughs> it's on. Just unnecessary. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. I apologize. Um, so anyway, John Pazenti, he started out um, working on the Valdez oil pipeline as a laborer, and uh, he eventually owned and ran a hotel called Kenai Lake Lodge. Um, and then, you, you know, over the years, right, and eventually he settled down in a place called Bear Valley uh, near Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, throughout the ensuing 30 years that he had left in his life, uh, John was just obsessed with photographing the, the wildlife, um, wow. especially the wildlife, but also the landscapes, you know, in this, this land that he had really fallen in love with. And he freelanced, um, he was always a freelance photographer. He eventually published three books of, of photographs and was actively planning his fourth book when he was murdered, uh, in 2007. And his, um, work was shown in really prestigious magazines, uh, National Geographic and Reader's Digest, just to name two. Um, his photos were featured in exhibits at the World Trade Center, at the Smithsonian Institution, wow. at, at museums, universities. Uh, President Ronald Reagan uh, really loved his pictures of bald eagles, um, and so much so that he hung multiple of them prominently behind the resolute desk uh in the oval office while while he was president that's a that's a huge honor that's a big deal yeah no, that's that's i mean I, you can't really get much more of an honor than that having i know something like literally up like in the not only in the white house in the oval, oval office, office behind the desk yeah. where everyone you know is going to see it um so to get you know these really like impactful pictures they're like really um you know, made a, a, a big um, emotional impression on people. John would reportedly lie for hours and hours um, in the Alaskan backwoods, just like waiting for that exact right moment when, you know, the eagle was like right there on, you know, perfectly aligned with the sun or when that wolf or bear or whatever was like tramping by. No, thanks. Yeah. But that that's like life for a freelance wild life photographer photographer yeah. you know out in the backwoods of Alaska um and he loved it you know he was just in love with that with that life um but of course you know it was it grueling tedious at times right sitting out in the woods and stuff but also of course quite dangerous um you know when you start talking about literally you know tigers and not tigers but bears and wolves certainly <laughs> I don't think there are any tigers lions tigers and bears <laughs> that's the one except not the lions um so but a lot of other stuff. Um, so it, it's, it's no coincidence then that his third book was titled Shooting Bears, The Adventures of a Wildlife Photographer. Okay, good. Um, Punny. Nice. Great title, I, th I think. And um, he certainly could have died in any of those intervening 30 years uh, of his, you know, tramping out in the bush, um, most probably at the paws of a bear. But he didn't, think, thankfully. But tragically, John's life was not cut short by the animals he documented, but by some unknown human animal. What? Uh, by a person. That was needlessly... I'm just I'm just <laughs> really getting into to extraneous stuff in this episode. Sorry. <laughs> um, he was killed. That's, that's the upshot. And police detective Pam Perrineau of the Anchorage Police Department found John dead in his home in Bear Valley at approximately 9.30 a.m. on December 3rd of 2007 after receiving an anonymous phone tip. Oh. And according to 
um, the write-up from an America's Most Wanted episode, Detective Perrineau, quote, went inside and the home was so cluttered she couldn't tell if there were signs of a struggle. In the corner, 55-year-old John Pazenti Jr. lay murdered, dead of a gunshot to the head. Whoa. Close quote. Um, so, you know, that first mystery, right, as to whether or not there really was like a fight or struggle or anything associated with the murder was just one of the many baffling uh, and frustrating aspects of this case. Um, after some investigating, Detective Perrineau said uh, the following about the case, quote, This is a real whodunit, and I'm stumped about the exact who is, but I am pretty convinced whoever done it is someone he knew well. Close quote. And the reason she was so, like, pretty sure it was someone that he knew well was because um, John had apparently racked up a large number of debts, uh, leading to a large number of enemies. Um, and while his work was well-known, uh, he gave talks all over the country, um, you know, as a wildlife photographer, he was not rich. He, he never got very wealthy off of his work. And consequent, uh, co uh, consequently, he, um, like I said, racked quite a few debts. He had a lot of um, unpaid, uh, like, loans from friends and family, right? The, they just knew he was never going to pay them back. And also, he would not pay the people who worked around his property. I Yeah, so pissed a lot of people off. Um, another angle to this may have been the presence of John's prescription of OxyContin. Um, which he took for his chronic arthritis. Valuable. Pain. Yeah. So was you know, it missing? Uh, yes, those oh. were definitely missing. And um, as we know, you know, over all the many, many years that we've all been dealing with this crisis, right? OxyContin is really addictive and, like I said, quite valuable as a, as a street drug. Um, so perhaps he was killed just, you know, for that and whatever little money he had, may have had on him, or maybe the murderer simply took the Oxycontin pills to pay down the debt that John owed him, right, in this hypothetical scenario. Um, in any case, like I said, frustratingly little details have been released by the police um, even more than a decade later, as the police say, say that they are still holding out hope uh, that they will find the killer. And they want to have, the, you know, the, those details to hold back. So if they're questioning them, they can say, like, well, this detail, this detail. And if they don't know, then it could be a false confession. Somebody who's trying to get, you know, publicity right. or whatever. It happens, um, surprisingly often. Um, and for other reasons, you know. So, yeah, there, there's just very little out there about this case. Um, and you'd, you'd think there would be more. But anyway, a follow-up article from uh, 2016 quotes... Another um, police detective from Anchorage, uh, Slav Markowitz, um, on what uh, Slav uh, and the department had ascertained up to that point, quote, We never really had a good understanding of why he was killed. We know that someone did it on purpose. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're both making faces right now. Um, there are still more unanswered questions than answers. Hmm. So, close quote. It is, isn't it funny how often quotes like that crop up? Is the police There's saying more just questions like, than answers. And yeah. the police just saying things that, I don't know, maybe it's just human nature that are just like both very obvious and just make them sound like they don't know what they're doing. Well, but to it's me... It's not that. It's, it, I think it's just that in the face of this, as a human, you just like, you don't know what, what, what do you say? You I know? think for me, it's... 
at least just the way I look at it, that it's, they have to tell the public something. Right. Even so when course, there is nothing. Right. So, of course, they're going to say, like, something pretty obvious. Because they're like, well, here's what we know, you know. And if they don't know anything, they're going to say things, true. obvious statements. True. True. Um, so, anyway, um, they do ask that, you know, if anyone knows anything, right, um, as with the other ones that I'm going to talk about, uh, contact Anchorage Crime Stoppers. Um, and you can just look up AnchorageCrimestoppers.com um, with an anonymous tip. And I'll give the last word, uh, as we, we like to do sometimes, to John's family. Uh, quoted from an in-memoriam piece in the Alaska Star. Quote, John loved Alaska and wanted to share it with the world. He was a much-loved man by his family and many people all over Alaska in the Lower 48. He will forever be missed. Close quote. Mm. So, just like anyone, John Pazenti Jr. contained multitudes, right? Um, he was apparently a man who didn't pay his debts, but to whom also the world owed a debt because of the time and struggle that he put into document wildlife in Alaska. I mean, it's not simple, right? These are these Nothing stories are never simple. Yeah. They're never straightforward, and they're always a little frustrating. <laughs> so thanks for embracing the mystery with us. Okay. So anyway, um, I'm going to... Th- this one's a little unusual. It's a little different than the ones that I normally do. This, this is not really one coherent story. This is more... Something when I was poking around about unsolved killings in Alaska, kind of, I, I came across this article um, by Kirsten Swan from the Mountain View Post, and it, it kind of document what documented what um, the author saw as like a string of killings in this like neighborhood of Anchorage. So I'm, I'm going to talk about that. So these are kind of like these unsolved killings around Mount, the community of Mountain View, Mountain and, View. which is okay. like on the, I looked it up on Google Maps, it's like the, the northern kind of edge of Anchorage. And uh, there's about 8,000 people who live in this community. And, and it's kind of a community, right? And they know each other and stuff. Um, a subset, you know, like within the, the bigger city of Anchorage, which is a pretty big city. Um, the first victim I'm going to talk about is Doris Ransom, who was found lying face up, bludgeoned apparently to death in Davis Park on October 7th of 1997. Um, and, that, and that's really all the detail that is, is out there about that killing that, that I, that I could find. Um, in my, in, at least in the little searching I did about it. Um, Hel- the next victim, Helen Kinnegak. Um, oh, it, and by the way, a, a lot of these, especially the, the, the first, the ones in this that I'm going to talk about from this article were um, uh, mostly native, in, indigenous Alaska women, um, and of course, there's this this larger, you know, it just comes up. You know, it's not like I was trying to find that. It's just that they disproportionately get killed, so a disproportionate number of them go unsolved, and for other reasons, of course, too. So, anyway, that's that's kind of an as uh, an aspect to this part of it, um, and this is in the years leading up to, to 2014, which is when the article was from. Um, Helen Kinnegak was born in Bethel and lived in Anchorage when she was murdered on or about January 11th of 2000. Investigators determined that she had died due to massive internal injuries, and um, her um, death was deemed a homicide by person or persons unknown. Um, In 2005, Martha Toms was found severely beaten, lying under a picnic table in Lions Park. Um, again, in, in the Mountain View community. All of these are so bizarre. Yeah. Especially internal injuries. What? And they're years apart, and it just doesn't necessarily seem like it's the same person, but it is it is weird. Like, there's this string of them. 
Um, and yeah, these just brutal, I mean, just horrifying um, killings, especially of these older women. Uh, the whole thing is very disturbing. Um, Martha Toms was found um, alive, uh, but died soon after um, arriving at the hospital from her injuries. And while the, the police have definitely not linked the crimes, um, some victims and community members definitely see a trend, at the very least, that merits further investigation, you know, in and of itself, um, which is, you know, does not seem like it's actually happening. Um, and this sort of tragic trend seemingly continued when 62-year-old Marie Andrews was killed on October 11th of 2012. Um, she was found at the bottom of a hill along Mountain View Drive with bruises on her face. Her wallet and cell phone had been stolen, and she was um, reportedly identified by her pacemaker, which I didn't know was Oh, like yeah, a thing you they've got do. serial numbers. Oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Um, as with all of these cases, little was ever, little detail was ever released to the family or the public about the cases, and no suspects have ever been publicly identified let alone, you know, brought to trial or anything. Um, police also didn't seem too interested in um, a mysterious phone call that Marie's daughter got, the one of the, the victim's daughter, um, a few weeks after the killing. Um, but they never, like, mysterious looked into it. Mysterious meaning. It was just, like, someone... It was after she had died and her cell phone had been stolen, right? Oh, so got from a, her cell call. phone. Oh. Yeah, from her cell phone. That's weird. And But the police never investigated it. And then later it was found, along with her um, purse, with, like, her wallet and everything, in a uh, dumpster. Like, a few huh. weeks after that. It was, it's very weird. Um, and then on October 15th of 2014, another woman, Irma Williams, was found killed in Mountain View. Again, near Lions Park. So, again, this is all in this, you know, one little, you know, neighborhood. Marie Andrews' niece, Georgia, describes the mood in the community after the then-most-recent killing. Quote, When this happened, all we thought, there was something going on. There are too many elderly native ladies in Mountain View that this is happening to. Yeah, what? Like, like, it's, yeah, it's weird. It, and it's not only in this community, it's in this, like, subset of this small, you know, community within Anchorage, it's it's very mysterious. Um, and like I said, cre just creepy. Is there like something in the water? Or, know. you know, like... <laughs> um, so, yeah. It's um, also kind of plays up this, um, you know, reality in the statistics, right? That the killings, violent death is more uh, prevalent among, among this community. You know, not only in Anchorage... Uh, but among, you know, um, Native women, um, especially. Um, I'm saying I'm um, like a billion times in this episode. It's okay, keep going. So, so <laughs> this is the, also the episode where I critique myself a lot. Uh, too much, I'd say. And then I go on. And since, like John Pazenti's killing, the police have chosen to, again, release frustratingly little detail... Um, it's really hard to know just how thorough of an investigation was done in any of right. these cases. It's just hard to tell. I'm not saying that they didn't. Maybe they did. We just don't know. It's just like, they're not telling us. Yeah. So there's no way to check. Um, yeah. After Kirsten Swan's article, um, like, you know, further in time, I found a few more recent killings in the Mountain View neighborhood as well. Wow. Um, it's still happening? Oh, Yeah. 
on October 28th of 2018, around 2.40 a.m., Jenna Del Kitty and a friend, Dejani Hale, were both shot by an unknown assailant from a dark-colored sedan. They had arrived home, just arrived home from a night out, and were literally entering in the code for the apartment. <gasps> and, like, about to enter it in and, and turn the knob and walk inside when they were shot. Oh, my God. Um... Both were hospitalized, but Jenna, unfortunately, did not survive. Uh, again, little detail was released by the police, but um, the families believe that there may have been... that that the that these these victims may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. That, that they... It, there they was a sense was that they random. weren't the intended victims. Okay. Right, if there was intention, that it wasn't necessarily toward them. So, which makes it even more difficult to, to solve, right? So, Dejani described her feelings uh, after her friend was killed to the Anchorage Daily News. Um, quote, So many shootings. So many reckless people. These people who did this are still out there. It pisses me off. I mean... Honestly. Close quote. Yeah. I identify with that quote. Strongly. Uh, that that was the best quote of the, all the ones that I read. It, it, I think it just really cuts to the heart of it i mean yeah exactly what the fuck like what the fuck what the fuck is going on like Ooh, it's too much it's like, very this, unsettling this, is not, this weird it's not normal you know Ooh, i'm intrigued yeah there's yeah there's apparently a lot of a lot of a lot of mystery going on around this um so apparently the carnage in the uh, mountain view neighborhood also is unfortunately emblematic of like we we're talking about earlier a kind of wider and growing issue of uh, violence in Anchorage. After the um, homicide rate, rather, after staying fairly steady for several years, from 1996 to 2014, even kind of dipping down a little bit, shot up after that in the past few years hmm. for some reason. I mean, do we ever really know what causes trends in violence? No, not ultimately, but I mean, the, I guess... You know, people have different theories, but uh, of the 28 cases of homicide in 2014 that they documented in the, in this um, um, piece in the Anchorage Daily News, a quarter were unsolved at the end of that year. And of course, that's not even counting like the ones that I talked about earlier, right? That remained unsolved from previous years. So obviously, there there are a lot of unsolved killings going on as as well. Although that's not the worst clearance rate that I've ever heard of. Yeah. Far from it. But um, it's not good. You know, and I think even one of the, the one of the officers even said it in here, like, one unsolved killing is too many. Exactly. So, you know. But also the, just the fact that so many are happening in general, you know, even if they are being solved. So anyway, um, yeah, that was pretty much it. Wow. So, yeah. I didn't know. I mean... And I guess that's a mystery, too. Why, why has there been this uptick? Yeah, I didn't like, what's that. going on why? in Anchorage? Exactly. I really don't... I'm not really sure. I do, I do not have enough information. Wow. <laughs> um, and you said there was episodes of America's Most Wanted. Is it just yeah. the killer? They're just looking for the killer? Just They're just looking for information, like this person is wanted? Or they have, like, a, a name and a face, and they're like find this no person. there was no there was no one person or face or anything okay but i also did not get to watch the americans most wanted episodes because i could not find them on the internet yeah uh which was unfortunate you know i spent a long time looking 
But I did find an America's Most Wanted summary quoted from their archives by America's Most Wanted fans, an unofficial page for America's Most Wanted and In Pursuit with John Walsh. I did find that. Okay. All right. Read it to me. Read it to me. That's my first source. Um, No, that was one of my sources. Oh, that was one one of the sources? Yeah. Okay. Um, My other sources, Mallory Peebles, Rebecca Palsha, and Derek Meyermeyer at KTUU, the NBC affiliate for uh, Anchorage, Anchorage Crime Stoppers, uh, their website, Alaska Star, Wikipedia, the John Pazenti page, Michelle Theriault Boots at Anchorage Daily News. Wow. Now it's your turn. Is my turn. Okay. It's fun to take turns. I don't know if so you knew that. I'm going to start with my, um, not theory, my, my source, um, because I, it was just one long form article from a, um, Swedish, I don't know if this is a magazine. This whole page is in Swedish. Um, journalist, a journal. <laughs> it's called VG. Okay. And the author and also the um investigator uh investigative journalist who is behind a lot of the updated um follow-up research is named Lars Christian Wegner. And it's called Mystery at the Oslo Plaza. So, this is a uh this one's pretty wild, I must say. And I also used a little bit Wikipedia just to find out more about the hotel. But a lot of it was in this main article because that was, they had, they, um, there was also about a half hour documentary I watched too on YouTube and they interviewed like the actual people and stuff like that. Um, so let, let's begin. June 3rd, 1995, a young woman is found dead in room 2805 at the Radisson Blue Plaza Hotel in Oslo, Norway. So this place is referred to as the Oslo Plaza. So it's this luxury hotel, beautiful. um, Norway's second tallest building at 384 feet tall with 37 floors, 673 rooms. And I also read that um, it's a place where, because Norway... And Switzerland and those areas are generally where peace talks tend to take place. This hotel is a popular place mm-hmm. for diplomats and secret meetings and shit like that. Um, yeah. Interesting. Um, so this woman checked in as actually with two people. Checked in as a couple uh, with the name Jennifer and Lois Fergate. And we'll get into that later. So I want to start at the beginning, three days before she was found dead. Sasha Renee Anonsen, the receptionist working at the time, checked her in. So they recreated it in the documentary, actually. um, And he says that she was alone at the time of check-in. And so it was an extremely busy day. Very, very hectic. They... um, Noticed her a few hours later as well, standing near the elevator by herself, maybe waiting for something. It wasn't until Saturday evening on June 3rd that anyone even noticed that something was wrong, right? So, Evie Tudum Gertsten, the receptionist, noticed that the guests in room 2805, a couple 
from they signed in a couple from Belgium that signed in as Lois and Jennifer Fairgate were way over their credit limit, right? So she's going through records, notices this. There's no credit card on file, but they've been putting things towards the room tab. So what they do in this case is they send, which I thought was interesting, send a message that appears on the TV screen that says, please contact cashier. And you have to press OK, like on the remote control for that message to go away. And um, they pressed OK. It was received like immediately. And it was pressed. The message actually had been sent to the room twice before. Um, the first time nobody responded. The second time somebody responded about 10 minutes later And this third time, this last time, um, they responded, um, pretty quickly and it's, um, so they've been here for three nights now and nothing, they haven't paid anything. Strange. Especially in a hotel such as this. Mm-hmm. The room hasn't been cleaned since before check-in, and there's uh, been a do not disturb sign uh, hanging on the door almost the entire time. So uh, Geertsen contacts hotel security. She feels like there's something wrong here. Yeah. Especially if they've contacted them three times and there's no pay. Lots of red flags going up. Yes. I also want to note that in the 30-minute YouTube doc, um, uh, Evie... Evie Tudum Geertsen talks and says she remembers that there was a man there with the woman. Um, but Anonson says he remembers her being alone, but he also admits that he's not quite sure. Um, Geertsen's witness statement also mentions seeing the Plaza woman um, with a man who had dark hair, was just a bit taller than her, but she also can't remember if she saw the man with the woman when she checked in or later when she came to the front desk to exchange currencies from dollars to kroners, which, kroners? Kroners? How do you say that? Um, Which I guess is pretty common in that area. So the, she calls security, the security guard named Epson Nace, Answers the call, and he heads up to the 28th floor. He knocks on the door, and a few seconds later, he hears a bang, and he thinks it's a gunshot. Um, but in the article, we also talked about how um, the, the the walls were pretty thick and the door was heavy, so it was, like, muted? Muffled. Muffled, yes, thank you. He waits a few minutes. He doesn't go inside. He doesn't say anything over the radio, um, either because he didn't want to alert the entire staff, but he goes back to the guard station, phones the police, and he alerts the head of security. The head of security goes upstairs, knocks on the door, waits. After a few minutes, he opens the door with his key card, um, and he notices that it was double locked from the inside, meaning only a security, meaning only security could enter the room, um, not employees. So, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. And he finds a dead woman lying in an unnatural position on the edge of the bed, laying on her back, her legs hanging off the edge. Her arms were up and there was a bullet in her head. Pool of blood, blood everywhere, um, all over the place. The telephone, the nightstand, it was soaked through the blankets and the mattress. Um, There was some on the ceiling, up the walls. She had blue eyes. Uh, dark hair that was cut short. She weighed around 147 pounds, was 5'2". Her fingerprints gave no matches in the Interpol database. She had a relatively expensive dental work done. Uh, when they examined her teeth, there was like gold and porcelain. Um, so 
And those types of This type of dental work is really popular in the United States, and it was sometimes seen in European countries, including the Netherlands, Germany, and Switzerland, and they think she was from Germany. Um, The police arrive about 30 minutes later. She is holding also a 9mm Browning pistol in her right hand. This scene indicated suicide, right? Um, There was no evidence of anyone else being in the room. The place was tidy. The TV was still on. There was only one piece of luggage. It seems like a suicide, but there are, and this is where things get weird, there's a number of things that are very wrong here. All the tags on her clothing have been removed, which in and of itself is not necessarily uncommon, but in this case, quite odd, considering there is no trace of her identity. There aren't any relatives to notify because they can't figure out who she is. Um, and so she, on the like check-in card, she notes where she's from, Verlaine, Belgium. Uh, and the Belgian police find no Lois Fergate or Jennifer Fergate. The papers at check-in had her signature spelled Fergate, even though the receptionist typed it in as Fairgate. Um The papers had her signature, place of work, phone number, and address. All of those checked out to be false. Totally fake. There were no forms of ID. There was no passport, no credit card, no money, no keys, nothing. The only other thing found was a small bottle of men's cologne. That was about it. They checked the the one suitcase that was there, but the only thing in it was 25 more cartridges. Nothing else. Um... The weapon didn't tell investigators much either. The serial number was purposely removed, and they looked at it and they um, determined that it was etched away with acid or some type of degrading material. The technicians, when examining the gun, recovered some of the numbers, but only enough to tell that it was made um, in 1990 or 1991. She also held... Okay, so yeah, they found the gun in her hand and she was holding it, in a weird position and actually in the opposite direction normally used. So when you think of like holding a gun, right, you're, I think I've never held a gun. Your pointer finger is going to be on the That's trigger, why it's called your trigger finger. right? Yeah. And your thumb is the safety, right? Controls the safety, but her thumb was on the trigger and the other fingers were around slash near the grip grip. Yeah. Weird, right? Yeah, that makes no no sense. The autopsy revealed that the bullet had gone straight straight through her head, through the bed, down to the floor. Um, there were two shot. There was actually two shots fired, um, and that were found at the crime scene. There was one that was fired at um, a pillow into the mattress, and the other was the one that went into her head. So. The police looked at it, said suicide, and that was like a test shot, maybe. But then also, why were there 24 other, you know, cartridges found? Um, uh, It was also suggested that the woman was around 30 years old. And um, this was at the autopsy, um, plus or minus five years. And note that more recently... It is, uh, yeah, I want to note that um, a little bit of an update. It was discovered that she was actually much younger, about 20 to 25. I think they put that through in like 2017. So she checked the um, check in card, she checked in as being 21 years old. The autopsy also indicated that there wasn't any blood or like 
gun residue found on her hands at all, which is also unusual. It's not unheard of, but in this case, when there was blood all over the place, there wasn't any found on her hands. Um, and no, and so they actually like, um, took skin samples and they sent that, sent that out for testing and there wasn't any gunshot residue or anything like that. There was no alcohol, um, no alcohol was shown to be in her system, but they didn't test for narcotics either or any other type of drug like antidepressants and stuff like that. She first called in to book the room on May 22nd, so a few weeks um, before. And then she called in again on the 31st to change the date to that very evening and told the receptionist there that there would be two people checking in. She checked in at 10.44 p.m., which, like I said, was a very hectic time, and I'll kind of get into that right now. So the Oslo Plaza was a luxury hotel, and at that point it was fairly new. I think it was made in 1990 or 1991, and the last flights of the day landed almost simultaneously at Fornebu, the main airport, the like international airport for Oslo. So... At that time, many, many guests would arrive all at once. And furthermore, there was also um, lots of flooding in the east of the country, as well as a protest going on. There were people on strike. Many police officers as well were on strike, including officers from passport control. And so that night, there was only one on duty. Oh, wow. Uh, and here's a quote from uh, the one receptionist, Sasha Renee Anansen, quote, I remember there was a long queue of guests. It was all about assigning rooms as quickly as possible. We mustn't keep the guests waiting, end quote. So the questions at this point, the obvious one, who is she and why has she, why was she never reported missing? How did she check in without a photo ID, without a credit card, with anything? Did she travel to the hotel just to commit suicide? Why did she book a room for two people if she was coming alone? And investigators even looked over, like, airline passenger lists from that night, but they didn't find anything. So why is there no trace of her her journey, supposedly from Belgium? If she planned to kill herself, why did she bring so much ammo? There were 34 cartridges in cartridges in all 24 or 25 found in the case there were seven still in the gun and then of course the two um that were fired and how was it that she managed to check in without showing proof of identity right the front desk supervisor which is evie tudem gertsten remembers that day and it it infuriates her she, she like does it she's very baffled by it um that this woman was able to check into the hotel with without so much as a passport, and she was there for four days without paying for anything. Quote, it's incomprehensible to me. We had strict routines at the hotel. It just shouldn't be possible. End quote. Very few people saw her that night as well. There aren't many witness statements. Um, she kind of blended in, was good at it, so maybe she was trained to not track. I mean, you know. Right. Um, she spoke both English and German. And if it was murder, then why was the room double locked? So with the plaza's locking system, you could turn the inside door handle up and down to make sure that the door to like make sure the door was locked at night. This that same technique would work from the outside if you put if you like inserted the key card before lifting the door handle. But not everybody knew that. Mm. A little over... So wait, could... could yeah. You, so that means that you could double lock it from the outside. Is that what you're saying? Is that what that means? 
Yes. Okay. I just yes. wanted to make sure I understood that. But you had to know the trick, which would suggest someone who was at least familiar with the hotel and stuff. Yes. Okay. Um, a little over... Yeah, so nobody could get in, and it was locked from the inside as well. Right. A little over a year after her death, the Oslo woman was buried in an anonymous grave at the Vestergravlund Cemetery. And, quote, from the investigative journalist Lars Christian Wigner, quote, Her burial was a funeral affair. No minister, no him, no friends, no family. I had worked on the case for some time and wanted to be present but couldn't make it. Only a single investigator and VG's photographer followed Jennifer Fergate to her grave, apart from the pallbearers and cemetery workers, end quote. So, yeah, it's it's very tragic. Um, Like, where... Where's her family? Where are her relatives? That's a huge mystery. Um, it seems like she's not missed, but you know that she is by someone somewhere, you know. Um, Lars Wagner wrote the VG article. Um, like I said, he was my main source. And they actually... So throughout 2015 and into 2017, he works with the Oslo Police District. And they try to gain more information. They continue to look into it. So they analyze, first they start with the clothes. They analyze the clothes more closely. It's not uncommon to, like I said, you know, it's not uncommon to remove tags from clothing, but when put in this context, it is strange. Only one tag was found, and that was on a gray blazer from a German brand called Rene Lazard. A green travel bag was found with more clothes in them, but there was still no passport, still no money. There was no makeup, no toiletries, nothing. And like I said, only that, um, perfume. And I didn't write down what it was called, but, um, it was described like on the bottle as being like powerful and masculine. Like literally that's like what it said. So that's also like a question mark. Like if there was someone else with her, Mm -hmm. a sweater, black leather jacket, sleeveless blouse, and Uh, that blazer were found on the baggage shelf. The travel bag contained black pantyhose, three bras, and a silk top. The woman was, was, she was wearing when she was, was found dead was all black shoes, pantyhose, bra, pajama shorts, and a black cotton jacket. So when Lars studies all this, he's like, okay, I think we need a female outside perspective, right? So he goes to his female colleagues to get an outside opinion, And all six of them asked the same thing. Where's her underwear? Right? No underwear was found. And the only bottoms she had were the silk pajama shorts. Um, There were no skirts or pants or jeans or anything else found. So obviously there's something missing. Right? Presumably. Presumably. And she had been there for three days. Yeah. Yeah. She, I mean, the only thing that indicated quantity of stay was the bras. There were three bras. Mm. Um, yeah, it doesn't sound like someone who's on vacation or staying. Yeah. At, it sounds very weird and planned. Like, it was something different, which, again, just makes it seem like a spy. I mean, it's just like, it seems like spy shit. It's very baffling. Yeah. So... You know, did someone take her things or did she throw them out, perhaps before committing suicide? The police documents don't say anything about, like, searching the hotel for clothes that were put in the trash or anything like that. The documents, and, like, we don't know if any lost bags or suitcases were found at the plaza either. And, again, not many people witnessed her in the first place. 
um, Kirsten Anderson, a worker in charge of room service, um, mentions in her witness statement that she thought that the woman was a flight attendant. Um, so it was common for flight attendants to be there. Um, they tended to wear dark clothing. Their hair was always up. They never carried much luggage anyway. Um, and they're very clean. And that was also one of the things that they noted that the, the room was very neat and, and, and clean, almost sterile. Uh, so when Kirsten meets with Lars in the spring of 2017, she also mentions that the woman had a rolling suitcase, but she didn't mention that in her official witness statement. And Lars was like, why didn't you mention that? And she was like, well, actually, like I, she says she was being asked very specific questions. And in that case, it wasn't something that she was prompted to, to, mm. to mention. And she also talked about how she wasn't very happy with her witness statement anyway, because of like the, the questions that they were asking her. She also mentioned seeing the woman wearing a dark knee-length skirt, but there was no such clothing item ever found at the scene. Vigdis Valo, an employee at the time, cleaned the room the day after the Plaza woman checked in. So um, uh, Vigdis noticed a pair of shoes under the baggage, baggage shelf. Um, she noticed them, quote, because I thought they were nice. I wanted shoes like that myself. I looked inside them and checked the name so I could remember it. But today, of course, I'm not able to recall the name, end quote. So she talks, so like Lars shows her the shoes and was like, are these the shoes? And she was like, no, like those are plain and black. These ones were very colorful. And she talks about, she was like, I wouldn't notice those. Like those are pretty like everyday normal heels. These were colorful, very colorful shoes. And so that's how we know it wasn't the pair that, the plaza woman was fat was wearing when she was found dead. So either she was walking around barefoot all day or there was a pair of shoes missing. Mm. However, based on the information that the investigators had, it wasn't possible for someone to have like removed clothing or other items from the room. All doors and windows were locked. Um, they even looked into the watch that she was wearing. It was a Citizen Aqualand watch produced in 1992, sold to retailers in 1994 and 1995. They never found, um, like, the manufacturers or specifically where the watch was sold. They actually, they also looked at the, there was a handwritten inscription on the batteries, W395, and they learned that lots of watchmakers mark battery changes that way. But they never managed to track down the watchmaker or even the specific battery because millions of batteries were made, like, monthly, yeah. you know. Um, the investigation also discovered that the weapon had been sent away for destruction, according to case documents. Um, almost everything was sent away for destru destruction. The clothing items and baggage found were thrown away two months after her burial in 96. Her other valuables, the watch ring and an, and an earring that was found was sold at a police auction. Although the gun was ordered to be destroyed, it was actually found on display at Kripos, the um, National Criminal Investigation Service, because they needed an example of a gun whose serial numbers had been removed, so they kept it and had it on in a, in a case. So they looked at it, studied the gun, but they didn't get much further with the serial numbers than they did. And back in 95, um, no fingerprints were found on the gun either, which contrary to popular belief, popular belief, it's quite difficult to lift fingerprints from a firearm. Hmm. Um, a lot of movies talk about how, but your fingerprints were on the gun. It's like, right. but it's difficult in to actually lift fingerprints from a firearm sense because it's not, a, um, I mean, it's it's a very hard surface, right? 
Yes. So it's not going to have impressions on it very easily. Yeah. Yeah. It's slick. I don't know. That's what I was thinking. It's slick. Yeah. Um, they also looked further into that. So, yeah, the only really tangible piece of ev- evidence they had about her identity was that check-in card um, that she filled out when she first arrived. So the city, it had, like, her um, address, phone number, place of work, birthday. The city listed Verlaine, Belgium, and that city does exist, but the postal code and the street name were fake. The phone number didn't exist. The company she claimed to work for didn't exist. It was titled Service, and the only connection that they found, like, maybe, was that there is a big company in in Belgium called Cerberus, but, I mean, that didn't really lead anywhere. Two numbers were dialed that night as well, identical except for one digit, but nothing came up because the records indicated that, like, no one ever answered the phone. Hmm. So, like, she called somebody, and, but there was no, there, there was never actually a conversation held. Lars's investigation team also they even they went to Verlaine, Belgium. They followed up on every lead they could, but there was no there was really no concrete or helpful information that was discovered. They tried to find like the street and like as close as where as they could to to get to it, but mm-hmm. they really didn't find anything. And when talking to one of the local investigators, they learned a possible reason as to why she was never reported missing. And Lars talks about how he never thought of this. Quote until the mid-90s, we had two different police authorities in Belgium. The police and the gendarmerie. Is that right? Germanderie? Germain? When someone reported a missing person, they were almost always told to wait 24 hours because many people turned up within the first full day. Communication between the two services was not, was not perfect. The Dutro case changed everything. End quote. The Dutro case. Belgian Marc Dutro was sentenced to life in prison after kidnapping, torturing, and sexually assaulting, um, sexually abusing six young girls in the mid-90s. Four of the girls were killed. It was a very popular case, so it's possible that if there was some kind of missing person case filed, it was overlooked. Two of the girls were actually kidnapped in the area uh, June 24th 1995 which is about three weeks after the plaza woman's death um and like I said missing person cases were handled differently back then um and that it was the Dutro case that changed that rule and 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 many others so the investigators at the time only talked to some some of the guests that were staying in the neighboring rooms but um Lars's investigators did some more digging they found that and this is very, I didn't know what to make of, I didn't, I didn't know what to make of this. They find a man from Belgium, um, that he was staying in the room that was fa- like his door was facing her door. So they were across from each other. Police documents say he was in Oslo for work. Uh, he stayed that Friday and Saturday. They called him Mr. F. Um, they said they called him Mr. F because he lives in the French speaking part of Belgium. When they finally, they try really, really hard to get a hold of them. They, like, um, and this was back in the 90s, so the email address was not active. Neither was the phone number. It took a while for them to get a hold of him, and when they did, he refused to talk. Uh, They found out where he lived. They went over there, still refused to talk. After a few days, Mr. F calls Lars, and they're actually standing outside his house. Um, And Mr. F is like, hey, like, what's going on? Like, what? Why you guys keep? Why do you guys keep talking to me? 
And so once they finally get him to talk, he says, quote, I remember it well because they asked me about it at the front desk when I checked out. Someone asked if I had heard or seen anything since it was in the same corridor, but I slept well that night and knew nothing about it, end quote. However, there's a discrepancy here. He checked out of the hotel Saturday morning, but the plaza woman wasn't killed until Saturday night. Hmm. Quote, I don't know anything about that. I just remember they asked me. That's all I know. End quote. He stops responding to their phone calls and they don't speak with him again. That sounds very fishy. Yeah. When studying the timeline of her stay... They, okay, so I thought this was pretty cool investigative work. They um, looked at, like, the key card check-ins, and they had specific times and stuff like that. So according um, to those records, they noticed that um, the Plaza woman was gone from the room for a minimum of 20 hours and a max 24 hours consecutively. Right? Like, where was was she? she? Exactly. (laughs) Records show that the door was opened with the woman's card at 8.34 a.m. on Thursday. The next time the door is open is at 12.44 p.m. that same day, but that's with an employee he card, and that is um, Vigdis Valo cleaning the room. Um, she stated that there wasn't anyone there with her besides the new attendant that she was training. So, And both of them confirmed that there was nobody there. The um, So the women left the Oh, um, so they you know, got done cleaning. They're there about five minutes. So in that case, um, the Plaza woman left the room sometime between 834 and 1244 because the next time her key card was used was 850 AM the next day. Hmm. Um, November of 2016, the body is exhumed. The goal was to get any trace of DNA and they found exactly what they were looking for, bones and teeth. From November 2016 to June of 2017, 2017 um, technicians from the forensics lab at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health work on obtaining a DNA profile, and they do. However, the DNA profile isn't much help because they don't have anything to reference it to. Right. So it's, you know, there's not much they could do with it. However, uh, they do try to pinpoint her at her ancestry. The DNA material is sent out to the Institute for Legal Medicine at the Innsbruck Medical University in Austria. And we've talked about this before, the upcoming breakthrough of mitochondrial DNA and all, all of those right. studies. Gene- genealogical DNA. Yes. Mitochondrial. Mitochondrial, yeah. Says that she's most likely European. In May of 2017, Nut Andres Jastad, a chemist at at um, Kripos, takes the Plaza woman's teeth to the, to the Department of Earth Science at the University of Bergen. Um, and they're also, that same um, um, investigators are also trying to find out where the Eastal woman came from. Uh-huh. Now, the Eastal woman, I don't know if you've heard I think that's the one that I've heard of. Yeah. So it's, it is pretty well known. Jane Doe case. She was found dead in November of 1970 in an area known as Eastelen, Bergen, Norway. Eastelen in Bergen, Norway. Her body was found charred. Her clothes and body were burned beyond recognition. The autopsy revealed she died from a combination of carbon monoxide poisoning and barbiturate overdose. So it was found in her lungs and indicating that she was alive when she was burned. And to this day, her identity is still a mystery, but it is something that they're working on. So finally, 
theories. Could she be a part of a major, major drug operation where something went wrong, so she either had to kill herself or be killed by someone else? Um, and like we, you talked about earlier, you were like, this is some spy shit. Was she some type of spy? Did she work for some type of intelligence service? Um, so that's why she had to remove all clues to her identity. Was she some kind of professional assassin who had come to Norway to kill somebody? Was she a high-end sex worker who operated in fine hotels? Um, or is this an Occam Razors type of thing and she was just a depressed woman who came all the way from Belgium to Oslo to kill herself? Who knows? We don't know. It's a mystery. And that is the mystery at the Oslo Plaza Hotel. Ooh. Ooh. Ah. So that concludes today's mysteries. That concludes. Mario, what time is it? And that's the way it was. Uh, it's 6.32 p.m. on Wednesday, October 9th. I meant it's time for in the central time weird zone. shit oh, in, in the, the news. news. <laughs> Good, you're getting you're <laughs> yeah. getting it now. Yeah. This is episode 90. You're catching on. No. Okay. I'm still Go, 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 go. On. I want to hear what get, you found. I found something, and I found it, and here it is. <laughs> and it is AP from the AP Odd, odd Page. And it's a family on South Carolina vacation pulls 44 pounds of cocaine from ocean. Nice, nice, so nice. So this family, you know, pretty having a good time, you know, hanging out on the beach, Fripp Island, you know, fripping it out. What does that mean? And that's where it was, Fripp Island, South Carolina. Oh. And uh, they, find, they see this weird bobbing uh, trash bag in the ocean. And, of course, they're like, well, we got to see what this thing is. I would have just left it alone, honestly, but they felt compelled to take it in their golf cart and then to their rental car and then back to their hotel and then ripped it open. And what they found was a lot of white powder. Ah! Yeah, 44 pounds of white powder. And uh, the authorities assessed the cocaine's value at more than $600,000. Okay. Um, okay. And officials are working to determine its origin. Now, they said this doesn't frequently happen in their county, but um, they're blaming Hurricane Dorian for pushing it ashore, presumably from a more drug-filled county? I don't know. Um, but uh, that's the story on that one. Pretty weird. And you had an update, I believe. I have... I don't know that it's it's... It's an update. It's a um, continuance. It is a it is a um, a continuance. So a something trend. happened again. So if you go back to um, episode fifty four of um, mystery, mystery murdery thingy, thingy this <laughs> podcast, we or I talked about um, cattle mysterious cattle mutilations. And it happened again, and I would love to tell you about it. And you, you didn't get the story up before. I we did get the story up, but I got it up on my phone. Oh. Um. So okay. So yeah, I found it. So this is from um, NPR. Uh, it was on All Things Considered. Um. So this is in Sylvie's Valley Ranch in Eastern Oregon. And five young. Apparently they hate that. Oh, what really? They, they uh, I was listening to a podcast earlier. They were doing a live podcast in, in like Portland or something, and one of them said Oregon, and everybody started booing and yelling. What is it, loudly. Oregon? 
Oregon. Yeah, Volusia. I guess. <laughs> Sorry, I just come. I felt compelled to interrupt you. Oregon. <laughs> Oregon. So five young purebred bulls mysteriously showed up dead on the ranch. Oh, it's five. Yeah, drained of blood, body parts precisely removed, which is the mo. And this was. Um, they said it happened in 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 the summer. It's oh god, it's it's that shit is so nasty. Like it's hot outside. There's like birds gnawing at it. He's um, bloodless. Uh, the tongue and the genitals have been surgically removed. Yeah, they were worth about six grand each, and so these were breeding bulls, so they lost a lot of money. Wow. Yeah, it's it's sad. It's sad. Um, and, you know... These aliens are just trying to exactly. corner the herd, you um, know? <laughs> people keep talking about aliens, and, you know, there's not a lot of evidence. There's no credible no. leads. No. The FBI won't confirm or deny that it's looking into these multiple slaughters that are everywhere. Where are the men in black? Where are the men in black? <laughs> it's just... Where the fuck is Will Smith? It's just weird. <laughs> it's weird. Very weird. Um, the Harney County Sheriff's Office continues to field calls on the killings, and Sylvie's Valley Ranch has put up a twenty-five grand reward for information that could solve the case. I bet. I mean, it, four breeding bulls, five or five breeding bulls. I mean, that's that's got to represent. I mean, potentially hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years, right? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, wow, I feel bad for that rancher. But I feel good for the aliens. I mean, they're really doing this. You know, they're really getting it done. Whatever it is that they're Whatever doing. it is that they're Whatever doing. That seemed to be. Yeah. Or maybe not, because they have to keep doing it. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Anywho. That's, that's our show for this week. That's our show. And next week, because we're every other week now. Dude, I'm so excited for next week, because I'm finally going to do my book report. It's going to be a book report, everybody. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, I also hopefully will read a book for next episode. Book report. Book we read. Report. It's cool because we're nerds. Uh, have a good rest of your Wednesday. Love y'all. Thanks for, Thanks for listening. Follow us on Thank all you. of the social medias, Facebook, yes, Twitter, Instagram. Yes. Please follow us on Twitter. I need to Twitter, get back on that. Twitter. I haven't Twittered in a while. I haven't been doing a little social media Hiatus well, it's become what's, what's very the, toxic the, the, for you, me. You, you um, use the thing to limit it, right? Yeah. You can only do cumulatively, what is it, like two hours a day? I set it for an hour a day. An hour a day. That's good. And That's then appropriate. It, and then it, like, turns off. And it's always the option to ignore for 15 minutes. Sure. Which I don't, I don't, I haven't been hitting my one hour limit, which That's is good. good. That's good. But um, I suggest okay. still follow I us. I think we're done. Goodbye. Yes, still Bye.